1: three, two, one. Welcome to New Books in History, a podcast on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Michael Van of Sacramento State University, but please call me Mike. Today, I'll be speaking with Sarah Zimmerman about her book, Militarizing Marriage, West African Soldiers' Conjugal Traditions in Modern French Empire, out with the Ohio University Press in 2020. Dr. Zimmerman is an Associate Professor of History at Western Washington University. She previously taught at San Francisco State University and UC Berkeley, where she earned her PhD in 2011. She is currently vice president of the French Colonial Historical Society, and following the, the uh, society's <laughs> sort of bothy style elections, um, will be president it from 2022-2024, um, following in a, a long line of um, truly fabulous uh uh, presidents of the French Colonial Historical Society, <laughs> uh, Professor Zimmerman, Sarah, if I may, welcome to New Books in History.
0: Uh, thanks, Mike. It's great to be here, and I do look forward to following in your footsteps towards the presidency of the French Colonial Historical Society.
1: Well, I was th- I was thinking of Sue P- Sue Peabody and Ruth Genio and the the other greats, but yes, I I, I guess I was president too. So. <laughs> Um, but before we get into militarizing marriage, West African soldiers, conjugal traditions in modern French Empire. Please tell us a little bit about yourself. How did you come to specialize in African history and um, African history's interactions with the French colonial empire?
0: Uh, thanks for this question. Um, I have. I was kind of thinking about like, kind of two integrated origin stories here: one for myself and one for the book. Um, When I was a first-year student at Ohio University, I studied abroad in France, and uh, we were on the Loire Valley, and while our weekends were made up of visiting um, castles and whatnot along the Loire, um, one of the most memorable things that I experienced while in France um, during that study abroad was meeting uh, undocumented immigrants who were hawking trinkets um, in Paris, and... There were some of the nicest people that I met in France who were willing to have conversations with me in in the broken French I spoke at the time, and I became very interested in learning more about France's historical relationship with the African continent. I had not learned much in my early life about um, France's empire uh, in the world. And so um, fortunately, I was attending Ohio University, which had a um, Title VI funded African Studies Center. Mm-hmm. And so when I returned to Athens, um, I kind of shifted course and began studying African studies. Um, and so when I graduated from Ohio University, I um, kind of continued my studies in, in, in uh, Africa, but had to pick a discipline when I went to grad school. And so I was very fortunate to get into Berkeley um, to work with Tabitha Kanogo. I was able to recruit Richard Roberts from Stanford onto my dissertation committee um, and also um, kind of create an Africanist community across Stanford and Berkeley in the Bay Area. And oddly, there was a crop of graduate students at Berkeley who also worked in Senegal, even though there was not a single faculty member that worked in Senegal um, on that campus. Uh, And I was also fortunate to bring Tyler Stovall onto my dissertation committee, and it was he who opened up the door um, to the kind of French colonial historical community. Um, So I had that kind of core group of mentors. Um, But then once I became interested in the topic of the Terrier Senegalais, and I'll tell you kind of how it got there, which is I was taking a course um, actually in the French department at Berkeley about kind of post-colonial literature. And one of the texts we were reading was Les Dames de la Terre, or The Wretched of the Earth by Franz Fanon, And it was my second reading of that book, but I had a kind of new eye for it in graduate school. And at the end of the book, you find that Fanon includes some comments or some notes on some of the case studies um, when he provided psychiatric services to French people who were participating in the French-Algerian War. And in one of those case studies, one of his subjects kind of talks about the torture chambers and how at the end of the day, they call in the Senegalese, um, that was kind of what was listed within um, within the book itself, and so my initial kind of reaction was, "What were the Senegalese doing in the torture chambers in Algeria?" In
1: Algeria, right?
0: Torturing Algerian dissidents or freedom fighters, right? And that really kind of opened the portal for me.
1: I'm um, trying to remember that case study. Um, where that was was the Senegalese uh, troop a torturer or sort of doing what was their their role?
0: It is somewhat unclear. So the case study, the person um, who is seeking psychiatric services is a French policeman who um, works in the torture chambers. And what he talks about is how exhausting the process of torturing these Algerian dissidents is and that at the end of the day, when the French who are in these rooms are so exhausted, they call in the Thierry Senegalais to kind of finish the job.
1: Bringing um, the subaltern further at the end of the. Uh, uh,
0: basically. Yeah. Um, but then there's also a, a really messed up critique of the Senegalais who never torture correctly. Um, they either are too brutal or too easy. They lack the finesse that the French would have in these torture chambers. Um, And it's really like a small mention um, and doesn't really kind of reflect much more broadly on the presence of Terrier Senegal in Algeria during the war. But it opened up a portal for me where I was just kind of like, what is this? And I initially became interested in kind of looking at kind of post-emancipation trans-Saharan relationships across North and West Africa. Um, and that didn't pan out when I went to go do dissertation research. Um, and I can kind of talk later about how I become, how I kind of ended up changing the topic of my dissertation and later kind of put the ball into this book. But it really was these kinds of moments um, that kind of pushed me... To kind of expand my understanding of African history and really begin to also incorporate or know that I needed to engage with the debates of um, French colonial history as well.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, that is one of the really wonderful things about this book is the way it intersects with so many different subfields of history, which I want to ask you about in a second. Mm-hmm. But um, I, I think that that's, you know, it's, it's African history, but it's French colonial history. It's military history. Like it it, it is. Uh-huh. Intersectional in its historiographic contribution. I think that's just such a great strength of the book, and one of the reasons I think a wide variety of um, listeners should uh, should pick it up. So, how so? How did you? Well, what's because that was that was sort of your origin story. Um, what was the what's the dissertation topic and the book's origin story?
0: Well, the dissertation ended up being kind of. Because of this, this kind of um, moment that I found in, the, in, in Les Dames de la Terre, or The Wretched of the Earth, um, the dissertation was really supposed to be about, like, as I mentioned, these kind of trans-Saharan relationships. But then when I went into the field and started conducting research, initially, I you know, interviewing veterans in the late aughts, um, most of the veterans had served in French Indochina or Algeria. Um, and so I became really aware that I needed to kind of address that history of, of empire, but I was still kind of convinced that there was something to this kind of history of kind of the trans-Saharan world post-emancipation during the French colonial period. So the dissertation ended up bookending um France's invasion of Morocco in 1908, and then kind of spanning to 1962, the end of the Algerian War. But then I integrated other um, kind of regions of empire that I could find enough sources to address. Um, And it was really about a kind of, the dissertation was really about a kind of imperial history of the Terrier Senegali. Um, And then of course, like many, I figured out what my dissertation should have been about as I finished it. Yeah. I'm um, I'm still trying
1: to figure out what mine should have been about.
0: (laughs) And um, when I finished writing my dissertation, um, I was very fortunate to eventually get a tenure track job. Um, And that tenure track job did not require me to have a book for tenure. So it really gave me some room to kind of think through the materials, to think through how I wanted to change the book and to really go against the stage advice of my mentors (laughs) 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 and to rewrite the book. Um, And so I moved it from a 20th century project to one that extended from the 1880s to the 1960s. And I went back into the field and did research into the 19th century in order to better understand the kind of centrality of conjugality and marriage to the institution of the Terrier Senegalais across this vast empire, and to be able to kind of center it as a through line to understand the changing nature of empire around these conjugal relationships. Um, And that took a lot of time, and I had to rewrite everything. And I added two content chapters for the 19th century. Um, I am satisfied with the final project. But still, of course, can see where it falls short of what I would like it to do.
1: Yeah, I I think I think it's fantastic, and again, eye-opening in so many different registers. Um, So let me give you this really unfair question: Um, (laughs) what's what's your argument in militarizing marriage? I mean, what's the what's the I don't know the elevator pitch?
0: Sure, and so I think um, you know how I kind of chose to answer this, or how I'm going to choose to answer this question is to kind of give a little bit of a summary to the book and talk about some of the main kind of lines of inquiry and some of the, like a three prong approach um, to a book that has many different settings um, and spans the 1880s to 1962. So, um, you know, it really kind of looks at this military institution and French empire from the vantage of conjugal relationships between um, West African soldiers who serve in the Togolese Senegalais, or this French colonial institution, so conjugal relationships between these soldiers and women um, from across uh, French Empire, and like these relationships, um, kind of center are centered around my inquiry um, concerning marital legitimacy, um, and I see this question of marital legitimacy as being at the heart of this kind of French imperial military institution that is the Togolese Senegalais. That was all kinds of tongue twisted, but I'm going to untwist it. Um, and so while tightly focusing on conjugality, sexuality, and women within the history of the Terrier the book follows the evolution of their marital traditions from the 1880s to 1962, spanning West Africa to French Indochina. And I kind of approach this from three prongs, like three kind of major ways of kind of thinking about this, space and time. Um, so the first prong is from the vantage point of West African colonial soldiers' marital traditions. Um, I was able to center women, gender, and sexuality within militariz- processes of militarization, military institutions, and conflict. Um, this was very, very important to me. Um, and I believe that the book shows how colonized women and heteronormativity were integral components of a military institution that made, maintained, and defended French empire over roughly kind of hundred year span. Um, further, my work uh, locates the violence of war and colonial domination in the formation of terrier senegalese conjugal relationships, right? In these extremely intimate spaces, you see the influence of militarization and violence. Um, And it becomes very interesting from this vantage to also kind of think through the ways that um, the French military kind of can become an arbiter of marital legitimacy of their troops, which awards particular kinds of benefits to people who are able to achieve that legitimate marital status. Um, and so it becomes very interesting to kind of take to kind of understand these processes from the perspective of conjugal partners, their kin and communities, the French military and the colonial state to try to incorporate all of the perspectives and advantages of these various stakeholders in this broader process of militarization, conquest um, and the formation of French empire. So that's like one point, right? The gender, <laughs> sexuality and women, um, aspect that I'm very interested in. And like the second prong is uh, something along the lines of kind of legal traditions of kind of custom, right? Custom, mm-hmm. tradition, marriage. Um, and so kind of thinking through marital traditions in African and French empire, um, African and military households sat at the convergence of West African, French, and military traditions of marriage within spaces of colonial conflict. Right. These are very kind of heavy and dangerous places to be engaging in conjugal relationships. But many of the people involved in them, um, whether it's children, whether it's conjugal partners, whether it's military officers, um, are still attempting to make good on the kind of conjugal traditions that they are pulling from their worlds in order to kind of make sense of how to do right or how to do best. Um, so, for themselves in, in, and for others.
1: In, yeah in other words, they're're they're, they're drawing on their own cultural traditions and, and knowledge trying to negotiate this French military imposed institution.
0: Well, I would say it's not just French military imposed, right I would say because of the contingencies, dangers and violence of militarization, it's almost as if people are trying to engage in best practices or not at all. Um, but are trying to engage in best practices um, and trying to be true and faithful to their own understandings of what is kind of correct marital or conjugal practices or marital legitimacy, but they are inhibited by the context. Um, But at the same time, there are these kind of issues of the implementation of colonialism which is providing the kind of bureaucracy and kind of slowly building up a kind of complicated state, which is attempting to limit how people can get access to legitimate marriage. Um, so it becomes this very interesting way of kind of seeing, um, how these kind of conjugal traditions of Terrier Senegalais sit at the intersection of all kinds of knowledge concerning marriage. Um, and to kind of take a sidestep really quickly, um, one of the things that's kind of very central to kind of teaching African history in the 20th century is to think about um, plural legal systems, right? We'll often talk about customary traditions. Um, in some spaces on the African continent, you also have Sharia, which would kind of dictate various kinds of civil institutions and in the reproduction of society. Then in various places, you'll have either Napoleonic code or, um, common law that are kind of implemented by, um, colonial states. But in the case of the Tiara and Senegal, what I find very fascinating is you find yet another line through which to begin to understand how various entities are making decisions that become, that build on and change customs around marriage because the military was independent of the civilian state in terms of making these decisions. They did in some ways try to incorporate what they believed to be kind of African traditions of marriage, but then rejected them at other moments. But then also you have these other kinds of contingencies where you'll have West Africans that are engaging in conjugal relationships in Madagascar. And then you also see the colonial military trying to kind of adhere or at least kind of take into consideration local marital customs in Madagascar. So these ways of kind of forming this custom, which I trace from 1880 to 1962 are influenced by people's inheritance as well as our contingent to place and time across empire. So that's kind of that second prong of kind of looking through trying to understand a new way of looking at marital custom um, within Africa, but also broadly across French empire. Um, it's, I think it's um, really fascinating um, no, to kind of think this way.
1: It's absolutely fascinating. And, and um, I think some, um, I mean, it's, so the book's published in, uh, the Ohio series, uh, war and militarism in African history. And I think a number of sort of military historians may be a bit surprised when they, when they get into the book and find out that this is not, not your, uh, not your grandpa's military history or so to speak.
0: Certainly. Um, and I will say, and I'll just think one mention really quickly yeah, yeah. before going into that third prong. Um, but, uh, it is the first book of that series, Um, yeah, so it's really exciting to kind of lead the new series. And there are other, um, there's a couple of other books that are kind of on the way in 2021 and 2022. Um, so I'm first through the gate. (laughs) <laughs> we'll, see what kind of, <laughs> we'll see what kind of standard the book sets. Okay, um, so what's,
1: what's your what's your third prong or your third, your third, prong uh, is, third flank? What's what's yeah, the right military terminology? Third flank. Third yeah, flank?
0: sure. <laughs> um is interventions in colonial concepts. Um yeah. chronologies, spaces as well as mobility. Um the Thiago Senegalais and their partners were part of a kind of enterprise that stretched from West Africa to Southeast Asia. Um, And so I think that the Senegalese and um, their wives challenge traditional chronologies affiliated with colonialism, um, because you can see that these women are experiencing the violence of colonialism in West Africa prior to the official start date of colonialism, right? Because they are bearing the brunt or participating in the processes that clear the way for the state to establish itself after military conquest. But then also you know I'm conducti- I conducted interviews with Vietnamese women in Dakar who relocated from Southeast Asia to West Africa in the 1950s and they're still collecting pensions from the French state um, whereas like their birthplace was no longer part of French Empire in 1954. They relocate to Senegal. That's no longer part of French Empire in 1960. But in fact, because of their ties to a deceased veteran, they are still participating in the legacies of this imperial project into the 21st century.
1: Yeah, And just their new identity, or their identity for decades at that point, as a Southeast Asian living in West Africa is... Such a colonial product. Um, so, when when the French Colonial Historical Society uh, met in Dakar, and you, you were there, that was and,
0: my first one.
1: Uh, was that your first one? What, what, what was that? Like two thousand four, two thousand five, two thousand six, two thousand six. Okay, um, I remember. I think it was in San Luis. Um, someone pointed out to me; they, they knew I was a historian of uh, Vietnam. That there was um, a famous uh, uh, Vietnamese restaurant run by a famous woman. I think it was, I think it was in San Luis. And, um, I was like, what, what the Vietnamese here, what, what, <laughs> and then like it never was never really explained to me. And then, um, th- this book lays out like the origins of this community in, uh, Absolutely. in Dakar in Saint Louis, and San Luis and, and elsewhere in Senegal.
0: And that's kind of like a final aspect of that prong that kind of yeah. insists that we rethink colonial relationships, because I think much of, Um, colonial historiography focuses on kind of metropole colony Uh relationships uh Um, and I really wanted to focus on kind of cross-colonial relationships and the movement of peoples among various parts of empire. Today we would call that like South-South migration um, to really kind of question how we often return to this like tightly bound metropole colony relationship. But if we look askance or look laterally, it really kind of transforms how we think about um, how perhaps West Africans contribute to French Empire or participate in French Empire, but then also how their interactions with other colonized peoples also shaped that empire.
1: Yeah, and there's sort of the, the big the big things like, you know, a Vietnamese emperor who's, you know, taken off the throne and sent, I think, to Madagascar and then maybe to, to Algeria and, and such things, you know, the British taking the... Um, the Burmese monarch and send them off to, to India. But here you're looking at, you know, larger numbers, um, and also real people's lives. I mean, (laughs) of course, of course the crowned heads are real people, but like, you know, much more history from the bottom up and much more, um, demographically significant. So the, um, The book works, as I said, in several different historical topics or genres or or fields. Um, Can you just sort of list what you think, uh, which which fields you think the book makes a contribution towards?
0: Yes. Um, So (laughs) (laughs) um, I think when I started out with this book, I really only wanted to make a very narrow contribution to the literature on the Terrier Senegalese. Mm. Um, you know, I really wanted to kind of speak to the women that participated in this institution, the women that were kind of by proxy parts of this institution because they were, um, conjugal partners of Terraria Senegeli. Um, and along the way that changed, (laughs) um, you know, as I kind of expanded out and began to kind of read the secondary literatures that I thought were relevant to the top to the project, I realized that it could have much more impact um, across broad kind of um, subtopics of African history or colonial history. Um, you know, and so I will say that you know one of the first things that I wanted to do was really inscribe women, gender, and sexuality into the history of the the Tiarayur Senegalais. And there I was kind of following on the opening that was made by Greg Mann in Native Sons that came out in 2006. Um, But I wanted to go even a little bit further and to really kind of think about um, the contemporary literature on women and war um, on the African continent and people who are raising certain kinds of questions and arguing for new methodologies that were kind of couched in feminist theory and queer theory to kind of rethink gender, to rethink sexuality, and to take those arguments that largely kind of emerged around um, kind of political science, sociology, and anthropology of wars from the 1990s forward and take that and apply it to this broader historical context or this deeper historical context, which I hope I have done. Um, and then um, you know, and that would allow me to kind of center women in this broader project of militarization of the Tiago Um, And through that, um, so you may not know this, but uh, in the 21st century, like marriage studies has become its own robust field in African mm. history. I did um, not know this. <laughs> yes. Um, it has become an institution through which Africanists explore a wide range of sociocultural practices, yeah. um, during the 20th century. And I think, you know, this is African history, uh, as it emerged as a subdiscipline, um, in the 1950s and 1960s was a friendly cousin of anthropology. Um, and so, and because of a kind of Africanist suspicion of states, um, there is a kind of heavy reliance on kind of thinking through social reproduction through the family and through the community and marriage takes a kind of prominent place within that. Um, And so I wanted to contribute to that literature by looking at these marital traditions within the Terrier Senegalais and say, not only can you kind of find women in the archives in uh, these kind of military settings in West Africa, but you can also see how these West African marital traditions contributed to this institution that then goes on to participate in the conquest of French Empire um, and see how we can kind of, you know, thread or kind of trace these traditions um, well beyond um, West Africa. Um, and I kind of already spoke to how I was kind of interested in kind of thinking through kind of the debates around custom and tradition um, that are also quite prominent um, within Africanist history. Um, that are uh, kind of always trying to undermine um, kind of colonial regulation of Africans' mm-hmm. um, sexuality and lives. Um, it was very late in this project that I realized I was a military historian. i had to be convinced by someone else (laughs) that i was in fact a military historian and that i must read cynthia enloe (laughs) and and that i really needed to kind of pay attention um to where the debates have moved um since you know i guess the kind of late 1990s when you have this move towards kind of social history and thinking much more about war and society to this orientation in the 21st century of really thinking through kind of the processes of militarization and what that can do for like all aspects of everyday life of soldiers and the the populations in which soldiers are coming out of and stationed in. Um, and so, and then
1: you mentioned Cynthia Enloe and do, doing a proper gendering of military history, right. you know, not just about masculinity, but um, factoring in women's history in a way that's not sort of marginalized, but like part of the larger fabric. I always, I always think of the 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 metaphor of of different historiographic threads being woven into a larger, you know, tapestry. And and I, and, and I was I was delighted when I saw you reference her in the book. And, um, and it, it really got me, but that, that helped me sort of mentally situate where this book is.
0: Yeah. Another key figure in those debates is Amina Mama, who is at mm-hmm. UC, um, Davis, um, who has really kind of thought about these issues, but principally in relation to, um, kind of the past 20, 25 years in Nigeria, um, and uh, like khaki, or, you know, writing about soldiers and kind of militarized states, um, and kind of thinking about what that does in terms of reconfiguring the state and society. Um, so her work has also been rather influential into my thinking.
1: Yeah. But just just as sort I of tick off the list, I mean the, the militarizing marriage is a contribution to West African history. Yes, it's a contribution to military history. Yes, it's it's gender history. Mm-hmm. Um, it is women's history. Yep. Um, it is uh what else? I mean, it's a contribution to French history. Yep. French colonial, colonial history, history. Mm-hmm. empire studies. Um, in 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 many ways, I think it is it's a it's a great world history monograph. I mean, in, at the World History Association, there's always these difficult conversations about how do you, how do you do a world history monograph, and and this is one right here.
0: Well, I was going to save that punch, but I'm ready because I know oh. that you are. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, like, I do participate in the World History Association, but yeah. largely in yeah. the regional conferences because uh-huh. the the organization's regular meetings usually occur when I'm away doing research.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh.
0: Um but yeah I do think that this is also a piece of world history um Absolutely. because of its geographic expanse and how many different populations are involved in these processes um and, the, it is, and the, intercon- yeah.
1: the interconnections that it's, that it's, that it's about a French created institution, but it's not at all Eurocentric in its, in its narrative and, mm-hmm. and the, the figure, the figures that we encounter and just sort of like the way the stories are told. It is, it is, I mean, it, 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 I, I'd give it the WHA seal of approval. This is, <laughs> this is world history right here. <laughs>
0: But one point oh, that I will make yeah, really quickly. Yeah, 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 yeah. One more point I will make really quickly is, um, in addition to these kind of like, kind of broad fields in which um, this book would kind of find, um, find interest. I will say also that since each chapter occurs in a different setting, that something that I found that, that something that I felt compelled to do was also to ground each chapter in local histories. So I had to kind of look into whatever the prominent debates were for that time period and see how I could anchor the story in Morocco, in Syria, Lebanon, in Vietnam, in Madagascar. And I learned that there are some places in the world that need a much more robust historiography. And I don't have enough Mm -hmm. time Mm -hmm. to do that work. But people out there, Madagascar, late 19th, 20th century, we need some of it.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, another thing the book does is history of intimacy, mm-hmm. and which is such a difficult topic to work on. Um, how did you How did you go about tackling research for uh, for intimacy? Where, where, where did you find intimacy in the archives? A sentence that could be totally misunderstood.
0: Sure, uh- <laughs> <laughs> sure. Um- I have a lot of answers to this question actually, but I think that I'll start with um, that really it was the sources that drove me towards thinking about um, the history of intimacy. Um, you know, This was really a topic that emerged from my research. Um, you know, As I mentioned, I had a completely different um, objective when I went into the field and so when I began to speak to veterans who had served in French, Indochina and Algeria, um, what I found is that they were much more keen to talk about their interactions with civilians, um, particularly female civilians, when we were having conversation. Um, and I don't know if that was a reflection of my gender in terms of, you know, what they thought of or thought about or thought my interests would be when I was asking questions. Um, And then so that was the first kind of aspect of it. Like they these veterans that I was speaking with actually kind of produced these histories in ways where I was kind of like, well, this is really fascinating. But then also when I was going into the field to do research, um, the pension debates were quite prominent at the end of the aughts. Um, and this, just for listeners, um, is a broader debate about the unfreezing of veterans of the Tirailleurs Senegalese pensions, um, which were frozen at levels in 1960, and that was not corrected until 2011. Um, so when I went into the field in 2007-2008, these pension debates were kind of on the tip of the tongue of many of the veterans that I interviewed. And, you know, they were not articulating their frustration with frozen pensions as a kind of negative legacy of French empire, as much as they were articulating it in the interest of supporting their families, right? So they were motivated to talk and engage in these debates because they were worried about supporting their wives, children, grandchildren. And I realized kind of at the intersection of these two issues that wives and household were actually quite prominent in the interests of Thierry Rue as soldiers and as veterans. Um, and because of that, I kind of reconfigured um, the questions that I was asking people um, when I was interviewing veterans, as well as reconfigured the kind of research questions that I had when I was going into the archive. Um, and then, you know, once I collected another round of material, I found I really had to become much more fluent in the literature and discourse of colonial history related to intimacy and desire and sexuality, um, which, you know, starts with Foucault moves to Ann Stoller and then goes forward. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I felt that yeah. like, that's kind of how that happened. Um, though I will say that I was in some ways hesitant to ask people, um, about their sexual relations. So I did kind of frame intimacy rather differently in terms of kind of thinking about attraction, love, desire, um, because I didn't want people to feel obligated to share things with me that they were uncomfortable with. Um, I was very attentive to the limitations of the IRB mandates, Mm -hmm. um, you know, that I had Mm -hmm. gone through before I went into the field. Um, but I found that some veterans were quite candid, um, about <laughs> yeah. their historical relationships with women while serving in the French military.
1: Yeah. I mean, I'm, I've always been terrified of doing interviews. I, I, I really, I really like <laughs> my historical subjects to have passed on and just be working with their archival remains. So I, I've, I found that, um, uh, admirable. <laughs> um, so, so let's get, let's get into the, the the stuff of the book. Um, sure. Tell us about the the Tiriare Senegalais and um, who were they as an institution? Who were they as individuals? And also, um, uh, could you distinguish them from other um, colonial troops, such as the the troops who are the originaire? Um. Sure.
0: Um, well, that's a couple of questions there. But so, yeah. <laughs> First, I'll just lay it out in terms of kind of basic history. Um, so the Tiago Senegalese had its origins in the African soldiers and military employees that were recruited to participate uh, or were recruited by French trading companies during the transatlantic uh, slave trade dating to the 17th century or so. Um, if you move forward, the Tiago Senegalese were officially created in 1857, um, And they were created for the purpose of assisting the French uh, in a military conquest of mainland West Africa. Um, And this institution existed until 1962 in a couple of different forms, but its legacies continue to today. And it's, it's it's fascinating to see the kind of continuing resonance of the Tierra Euro Senegalese in the current moment, though. I think there was a kind of, um, kind of apex in the mobilization of Tiara Yur uh, as a kind of site, like S I T E, a site um, of uh, kind of like negative French legacies um, during the Abdelaye Wad administration in Senegal, who was the former mm-hmm. president. Um, so those are kind of the kind of bookends of what the Tiara senegalese Senegalais were. Um, to your question, about um, the originaire. So, what West Africanists know, but many others don't, <laughs> is that there were four uh, communes in what is now Senegal um, Saint Louis, uh Rufisque, and Dakar, which by the end of the 19th century um, had citizenship status. They were essentially exclaves of France. And so, people- yeah, and, and, and
1: for 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 non-francophone listeners, but we say commune. I mean, we're really talking about municipalities. I mean, what would be sure? The, yeah, that would be a better it's way. It's the city of Dakar. Um, Gore two island. islands,
0: Goree and San Luis. And, yeah, right. is
1: an and then is an island. Mm-hmm. Rufisque and Rufisque is a much smaller town. Just it's a port, sort of south on the road on the port of near Dakar, right? So they're sure. pretty close together, but they're
0: mm-hmm.
1: they're these little ur- urban sites.
0: Yeah, these coastal port towns that were, except for Dakar, because Dakar didn't really exist until the late 19th century, but were um, kind of historical sites of kind of French contact um, in West Africa. And because of that longer trajectory with French contact, um, these sites acquired a special status Um in the second half of the 19th century at different times, but I won't give the whole history um, where they became exclaves of France. And these were sites in which people who were born in them um, had French citizenship um, and could, well, men above the age of 20 could vote uh, in an elector into the national assembly. Um, These kind of, Rights and obligations of these populations were somewhat in flux and contested. Um, <clears throat> but during the First World War, uh, the elector from these four communes, Les um, was able to kind of railroad a couple of pieces of legislation into National Assembly and guarantee the citizenship status of people born in those four sites as well as their kids as well as their offspring. So, uh, what is it, Jus Sanguini and Jus de Soli, right? Like, so people born of that place, but then people also kind of inherited via the blood um, of French citizenship. And one of the ways in which Blesdien was able to kind of re- uh, railroad this legislation through was that up until the First World War, um, these like the people of the four communes who were known as the originaire or the people who originated in these four communes, their obligations to the French state were unclear. And blaise makes an argument that, well, if we guarantee their citizenship, that means that they will become French citizens and they are obligated to serve in the French military. And so from 1915 and 1960 forward, um, 1915 and 1916 forward, these two pieces of legislation um, the populations from these four communes serve in the French military. They are not serving in the Togolese Senegalese. The Togolese Senegalese are a part of the um, colonial army, which is where West African subjects serve, um, mm-hmm. and the originaires are serving in um, regular French units. Um, right, right. So there is that and- distinction.
1: Yeah. And, the, and the, the, the name Tiro Senegalais mm-hmm. quickly becomes a misnomer, right? Because they're, they're not just from Senegal proper.
0: Right. And so in the 19th century, um, you know, because of the institution's kind of origins in the transatlantic trade, um, many of these soldiers were, many of the initial soldiers in this institution were recruited from the Senegal River area. Um, and along the coast of what becomes contemporary Senegal. But very quickly from the 1880s forward, what you begin to see are many more people being recruited from what is contemporary Mali. Um, and so by the time the First World War begins, the majority of people serving in the Terrier Senegalese are actually from what is now Mali, or back then kind of referred to as French Sudan. Um, and then that you know demographic changes again after the Second World War when you begin to see increasing numbers of Ghanaians and Burkina Bay um, serving in the institution. So very quickly, Terrier Senegalese becomes a misnomer. It also ends up becoming an umbrella term for troops that are recruited in equatorial Africa in the 20th century. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it, it very quickly kind of loses some of that kind of geographical spe- specificity. Um, but I will say also that, um, in addition to kind of thinking about um, how this term is a misnomer, um, there are other kinds of demographics to kind of think about. Um, in the 19th century, uh, many of the recruits um, had slave origins, and mm-hmm. the, t- the French military kind of marketed the Tihari Senegalese as a mechanism out of slavery. Um, in 1912, a piece of legislation is passed to mandate quota-based conscription across West Africa, which again changes the fi- the kind of demographics of the Tiraillus Senegalese, And that, you know, that conscription law has a big impact on recruitment during the First World War. Um, <clears throat> and then, you know, kind of moving forward with the professionalization and bureaucraticization of this institution in the interwar years, and then... Um, after the Second World War, um, in 1946, you see the elimination of forced labor uh, in West Africa, um, which nullifies these conscription mandates. And what you begin to see in 46, 47, and 48, just as you begin to see the French-Indo-Chinese war, is that people in West Africa see the Terrain Senegalese as an employment opportunity, with benefits and pensions and it's seen as a kind of professional colonial job um so the institution demographically really shifts over time as well as the motivations of people to um enlist
1: and and what what are some of the the french assumptions about these uh these soldiers these men i mean you you talk about the publication of a um of a book, uh, I think it's in the Morocco chapter. Uh, is it Le, Le, Le Force noir? La
0: La La Noire? La
1: Yeah, and what, I mean, there's there's some, you know, racist stereotypes and assumptions, some of which are incredibly contradictory. Indeed. Um,
0: um, and what becomes very fascinating, so that what you're you're um kind of referring to are the troupe noir or black troupe debates, um, and you know, this, this very dynamic military officer who has commanded Tirailleurs Senegalais in West Africa and would go on to command them in World War I, um, he takes up a lot of oxygen. And he is very good at um, dominating debates that are going on in France, in kind of getting publications out, and really kind of controlling the discourse around the Tirailleurs Senegalais in the run-up to World War I. So his text becomes like a key text informing many different officials within kind of French bureaucracy about the potential of deploying Thierry-Hier Senegalais in mainland France. Um, And so this text, La Force Noire, which comes out in 1910 by Charles Mourgin, or it looks like Charles Mangan, um, is fantastical. Um, You know, he... (sighs) he really isn't bothered by evidence. Um, And he (laughs) is very interested in drawing connections that he sees that are not supported by evidence, you know, something that us, as as we as historians um, kind of make our discipline on in many regards. Um, But he's engaging in kind of any argument possible that he can pick and pull from Orientalists to his own observations to kind of, you know, um, kind of entertaining the fears of pronatalists at the beginning of the 20th century to make arguments about how superior tirailleurs Senegalais could be as kind of universal utilitarian troops for France and French empire. Um, and he makes these arguments that um, people... Like sub-Saharan Africans and members of the Sub-Saharan African diaspora um, are kind of intractably and innately a servile population, which makes them apt soldiers, um, ready for command and um, easy to discipline, right? And I think that he is, while never kind of talking about what his foil is in that work he's combating particular kinds of ideas about, um, or or I I shouldn't say particular kinds of ideas, about racist assumptions about men's sexuality or black men's sexuality um, that have existed since um, the French engaged in the transatlantic slave trade. Um, And so it becomes like devastatingly fascinating to see how successful he is at convincing a very wide um, audience of, this, of the kind of utilitarianism of the Terraria Senegalais. And in many regards, um, his work, La Force Noire, um, is the run-up to the 1912 conscription law, which creates a standing Black force in West Africa, which is to be this um, kind of pool that France can draw upon to fight its many wars across empire.
1: So, so as, as I understand it from um, my reading of your book, you know, these ideas about these West African men's sexuality leads to the creation of distinct institutions for them. Um, It's well, it's in the title of the book. I mean, it's the, the conjugal traditions. Um, And um, so what what does the French um, military create for them in terms of an institution, and and who are these individuals who come to be known as the uh, the Madame uh, Tiraire?
0: So this is a great question because I think that in terms of the ways that the French become interested in um, regulating Tiraire Senegalese sexuality and the ways that. They attempt to build up marriage as an institution, or break it down, or rely on um, the industrialization of sex work in various places across across this vast history. Um, you know, much of this is contingent to place, but is also contingent to military assumptions about what sub-Saharan African men are and so i will get to your question but (laughs) um i think that there are many competing logics among the french uh, among french military officials um regarding you know are west african men um innately um uh husbands and fathers right like are they innately members of households are they innately um people who are who eschew marital relationships or conjugal relationships. And I feel like the military kind of deploys this these discourses in ways that are convenient to their for their own kind of goals of conquest, goals of maintaining particular populations within a colonial state, um, and goals of defending empire. So for example, um in the 19th century, um, what one sees is that the French believe that most Tiaoyer Senegalese are formerly slaves. And one of the ways in which um, men can escape their previous slave status is to marry and have children and become important men. And so, what you see in the 19th century. Um, with the kind of creation of Liberty villages for refugees, for escaped slaves, as the French are wreaking havoc on the region through the violent conquest of West Africa is that you see people who are able to leave their master, their former masters and attempt to establish new lives in Liberty villages. Um, West African soldiers or potential West African soldiers can guarantee their freedom by signing up for the tirailleurs Senegalais um, for a period of 10 to 14 years um, to ensure that the French state, um, or actually so that the French state will ensure that their former masters cannot reclaim them. Um, And so you have that kind of mechanism of the Liberty Village that facilitates Terrayur Senegalais leaving a state of slavery. These Liberty Villages also provide Terrayur Senegalais with a potential conjugal partner or a population through which they can identify conjugal partners. Um, and so one way that women can guarantee their ability to escape former masters is to marry into the Terrayur Senegale. By this point, um, <clears throat> you see a growing population of women and children who are affiliated with the Terrayeur Senegalais. And this is where you see the beginning of the madame Terrayeur, sometimes called Mesdames Senegalais. Um, so the Mesdames Terrayeur and the Mesdames Senegalais um, has a particular kind of shelf life that dates from the 1880s through the First World War. And so the madame Terrayeur are affiliated with Terrayeur Senegalais um, however, I believe there are kind of a range of um, significations that are kind of embedded in this title and how military officials uh, deploy it. So <clears throat> first, I think that Madame Thierry, um signifies a woman who is affiliated with a soldier and who has the right to travel with the troops as they're engaging in campaign. Um, and, the t- and the French military actually funds their participation in campaigns in West Africa, transports these women with their conjugal partners to um, what becomes French Congo to Madagascar and to Morocco. Um, And the
1: the Madagascar one is the one that really made me sort of, stand up i mean it, it, like a, around the uh, southern uh, tip of africa i mean this is a a major undertaking to move um, what i guess in the british tradition they would call camp followers but camp they're followers much and much settlers. but they're much yeah. more than that though right they're much more than that they're settlers too right
0: yeah and so it's a think like that camp. yeah and i think in the french it's like cantonnière blanchisseuse uh, mm. mm. um Vivandière. Those are the kind of words that are often used to describe camp followers in French. Um, But these women are also auxiliary soldiers. They're providing other kinds of services to the military um, in addition to providing domestic services to their partners and other troops, as well as raising their families um, in these rather hostile environments. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Um, where, Where they are not from
0: correct and they don't speak local languages and it's very no. difficult to source local resources um, in order to sustain their families while dealing with the militarization of the societies they live among
1: yeah I mean as you said in some ways they they, they are an auxiliary of the French military project
0: mm-hmm.
1: this is women's participation as subalterns in the in the colonial enterprise.
0: But I do think, yes. And so, yes, absolutely. Um, But one other kind of key component of this, which kind of uh, is part of the kind of questions around marital legitimacy that are so key in the 19th century about these um, women is that I believe that Madame Thierry is deployed in the archive by French military officials in a variety of ways. One, it recognizes that they are an official member of this kind of project that is the Terrier Senegalais on campaign across empire. Um, But at the same time, I feel as though this term is deployed in ways that question their marital legitimacy, um, that really kind of derisively um, kind of portrays these women, especially in Madagascar, um, in the particular kind of scene that I set around a Madame Terreur whose name is Marie, who is kind of arguing for the enslavement of local women to participate and help um, with the support of troops in the highlands of Madagascar. Um, but but Madame Terreur kind of disappear uh, in the run up to World War One. Because while the French have or while the French military has relied on these women to help support these troops um, throughout the 19th century and early 20th century um, they are not welcome in mainland France And so in the run-up to World War one what you see is an argument for professionalization um, and for the Terur senegalese to, begin to look like all other nationalized professional troops in Western Europe and North America that really kind of removed um, civilian women from military units about 50 to 60 years earlier.
1: So the the First World War then and and taking West African troops to defend France from German occupation we will leave the we, we don't have time to get into the ironies of all of that sure. taking people from an, a colonized zone and and making them serve a French republic um in its time of occupation um they uh this this breaks this uh this at, at what point is now what 40-year-old, 50-year-old institution.
0: Yeah, and it's really curious, right? Because the arguments that the French make to include Madame Terrier on campaign in Morocco is to ensure a kind of racial segregation so that Terrier Senegalese do not seek Moroccan women as conjugal partners because the French are worried about transgressing trans-Saharan racial order. So they make these arguments that these women will ensure or that the Mesdames Terrayeurs will ensure that Terrayeurs Senegalais aren't seeking local conjugal partners. And they drop that logic when Terrayeurs Senegalais are deploying onto mainland France, right? Um, And it becomes really curious to kind of see how these discourses change as they become contingent to other kinds of colonial anxieties um, in different parts of empire.
1: Yeah, and then you've you've got a great section on the interwar years, which unfortunately we're getting a little pressed for time. Sure. Um, I'm going to skip over to because I because I want to talk about Vietnam. Let's do it. <laughs> that's who I am. Let's do so it. So, what's um in the era of decolonization and the Cold War, the French military um, deployed the Tirailleurs to Vietnam to fight the Viet Minh, and um, um, how does this complicate um the story of the of their lives and their uh, their their habits, and also, um, at this point, there's a there's a, also a contrast between the tirier who what arrive in the mid 40s, versus the Originaire, other other African troops who had been there for decades at that point. Correct?
0: Yes. So, um, what becomes very interesting in the late 19th century. So, I'm gonna back up the truck just a second. But in the late 19th <laughs> century, you begin to see military officials in. Um, what is becoming French Indochina in the 1880s, 1890s, begin to question, like, hey, should we import the Tirailleurs Senegalese? Should we use these these troops here? Um, Will they be a kind of useful kind of component in the conquest and kind of containment and maintenance of French Indochina? And the debates go back and forth in the 1880s, 1890s and early 20th century and kind of fall flat um, for a variety of reasons. And then you know, because the originaires are guaranteed French citizenship and serve in the French military, originaires or men from the four communes of Senegal begin serving in French Indochina immediately after the First World War. Um, and some of these men, um, particularly those who are serving in the interwar period in the late twenty in the late nineteen twenties and early nineteen um, <clears> thirties find that they fall in love and start families and because they are citizens they're able to extend their tours of duty and stay for long periods of time so you know you have some so i interviewed one veteran um and this is this is a complicated later story but i interviewed one vet- veteran in senegal he was Born in Vietnam to a Senegalese originaire father and a Vietnamese mother. He was born in 1933. Um, at the conclusion of World War II, the whole family moved to Senegal in like 46 ish. When this person came of age, at the age of 20, he was a French citizen because his father was a French citizen via the originaire status that he had back in Senegal. So when he turned 20, he became a soldier in the French military and was deployed to French Indochina in 1954 as a French soldier. So you have these kind of like multi-layered stories of these originaires who in the 30s and in the 40s, particularly when they're abandoned by Vichy and have to survive on their own with their conjugal partners and their conjugal partners' families, are creating these large uh, kind of interracial families and are not really able to, well, actually some of them kind of moved to Senegal after 46, 47. Um, others kind of stay in place. And then the Togolese Senegalese begin deploying to Vietnam um, in '47, but they don't arrive until '48 because it is a long boat ride. <laughs> um, <laughs> and what becomes interesting in Vietnam um, for a variety of reasons, and what this does in terms of kind of kind of changing the direction and orientation of the book is that they are encouraged to engage in sexual relationships with Vietnamese women, but not conjugal relationships. Um, When Terrayeurs Senegalais arrive in 1947, there is already a decades long tradition of a very robust French military presence in Vietnam. And there has been an industry of sex works that has kind of responded or kind of evolved in parallel with that militarization. And by the time Thao and Senegal arrive in Vietnam, um, many military officials assume that they'll kind of insert themselves into these kind of militarized, mil- militarized traditions of industrial sex work. Um, but what ends up happening is many of these Terrier Senegalese engage in conjugal relationships. Like they're looking for, um, they fall in love, right? Um, and this creates a lot of problems for, um, the French military. Um, but what this kind of does more broadly for the book is that, Uh, It gives me an opportunity to think about kind of interracialism in new ways because I was able to interview veterans, their wives, and widows, as well as interracial or kind of Afro Vietnamese children that continued to, who who were in their 50s and 60s when I was conducting interviews in Senegal. Um, It also kind of led me to really rethink international adoption. Um, the ways that kind of interracial families were able to convince the French military to help support them to relocate their entire families to West Africa, um, the removal and shipment of uh, orphaned Afro-Vietnamese children to West Africa who were uh, consequently um, adopted by military families for the most part um, in West Africa. Um I really kind of relied on some of the work of Emmanuel Sada to kind of think mm-hmm. through this as well as Christina yeah. Um And, you know, this part of the book really made me think through, um, you know, um, the United States uh, kind of interactions with Vietnam in the aftermath of um, this uh, lengthy war as well.
1: Yeah, in, in so many ways, the French uh, French experience is a, a precursor to the, the various uh, things. The United States will find itself engaging in, in, in Vietnam, both in terms of the war, but also the larger social consequences and, and human consequences of this type of movement of people and so forth.
0: Um, um, if I may make one more yeah, point, before yeah, I'll cut please, you off. Please. I promise I will. Yeah. I will speed it up. <laughs> but um, you know, I just received some information. Uh, I guess yesterday, so I, I, I do want to oh. um, incorporate this. Hot off
1: the presses. Okay.
0: Yeah, unfortunately, not not great news. But um, okay. so something that I found really compelling about um, being able to access the kind of intimate histories of kind of Afro Senegalese interactions via these families was that I could really think through long distance migration, the kind of um, integration of these foreigners into Senegalese families and the kinds of ways that um, (laughs) Vietnamese women and their multiracial children um, kind of confronted Senegalese traditions of marriage um, and gendered expectations within those marriages Um, but then also through their lives, see the kind of legacies of French militarization, imperialism, and decolonization. Um, And I was, and and the point that I was going to bring up is that, um, you know, until, uh, like, the last time I was in Senegal, um, in February of 2020, the Senegal Vietnamese Association, which is a specific association with a quite robust um, uh, community, you know, was celebrating Tet. This is the kind of, I guess third now time that I've participated in a Tet celebration, um, in Senegal
1: in, in, in Dakar. That's fabulous. Yeah. yeah.
0: And what's unfortunate is, um, the kind of doyen or the matron, mm. um, of this community. Um, Ellen, uh, Ndoy Lam, um, just passed away to coronavirus. Oh, oh yeah. I'm so sorry. Um, And, you know, several of these kind of like key members um, are really being affected by this kind of third wave of coronavirus that's rampaging through Dakar at the moment.
1: Oh, I'm so sorry.
0: Yeah. I just wanted to kind of give a little bit of honor to her legacy. Yeah. There. And for all the work that she's done in terms of organizing that community.
1: Yeah. Um, So. You've been really generous with your time, um, but we need to, we need to wrap up. Um, before I get, let you go, I've got a couple of questions. Um, can you recommend um, two books for us um, that uh, related to the subject or, or something uh, that, uh, you know, is inspired by this work?
0: Yeah, I actually thought long and hard about this. Um, and I came away with two works of fiction. Mm, um, please. So the first is a book that I'm currently finishing. I'm most of the way through, which is um, Maza Mengiste's Shadow King, um, which takes on the perspective of Abyssinians who are reacting to Mussolini's um, invasion um, of Ethiopia um, in the 1930s. Um, The book just came out in 2020 and it is a fictionalized account and it's from the perspective of a servant girl who um, goes through a lot of complicated experiences um, and you really get to see um, the full complexity of her personhood while she kind of rises to um, the context and challenges of this invasion. Um, and the other book is um, Chimamanda Adichie's Happy Yellow Sun, uh, which is a kind of fictional account of two sisters um, as they navigate the nigeria Biafran War. Um, and the reason why okay. I picked these two books is because they do things that I'm never going to be able to do. Um, they give the kind of intimate inner dialogue of women who experience the militarization of their societies and what that does in terms of transforming how they understand their own gendered relations and gendered roles within the military or within the militarization of their societies Um, you know, the violence they experience, the hardships they overcome, the communities that they build. Um, And, you know, I just, I I wish that I had access to those kinds of primary materials that would allow me to get at those kind of internal dialogues um, from the 19th century or from the 20th century. Um, But fiction really gives you wings when it comes to getting at the human experience.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, Well, finally, what are you working on and um, what can we hope to see from you next?
0: Uh, I'm currently working on, so I went from a very (laughs) geographically broad um, project to one that takes place on an island that is 300 by 900 meters big. Um, So I'm writing, or I'm working on a um, gendered history of Gori Island, uh, which is a UNESCO World Heritage Site in Senegal. Um, and I'm interested in doing two things. First, kind of writing a, a history of women from the seventeenth century through the present. I think many people know who the senior are, but
1: I mean, they they're these famous uh, business women that were yeah, kind of exactly. running, running the island for generations, right?
0: Yeah, especially like they're seen as kind of entrepreneurs of the 18th century. And yeah. then the history of women on the island kind of disappears. And so I want to trace that history all the way through the 20th century, but then also kind of really kind of ask important methodological questions about how women are kind of recorded in history um, and in the kind of historical documentation and the oral traditions and kind of think about how um, women participate in the production of history and the commemoration of that history in contemporary Goree. Um, Because there are many women's civic society or civic associations that do all of this work that doesn't necessarily make it into the UNESCO booklet.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Great. Well, I look forward to seeing that.
0: Yeah. Thanks so much.
1: So, um, Sarah Zimmerman, thank you so much for uh, chatting with me today. My pleasure. So this has been a conversation with Sarah Zimmerman about her book, Militarizing Marriage, West African Soldiers, Conjugal Traditions in Modern French Empire, out with Ohio University Press in 2020. I'm your host, Michael Van of Sacramento State University, and this has been an episode of New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. Thank you for listening.